0: This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King.
1: Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, from Washington... It's the masters of disaster. Suddenly, scandals on three fronts. Benghazi, the IRS, and conservative groups, and the Justice Department's seizure of phone records of the Associated Press. It hasn't felt this way since, well, the beginnings of the second terms of George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and Ronald Reagan. You, you get reelected, the mistakes get made, and the knives come out. So we're headed for a summer of scandal. How do you contain it? Today we're talking to two old friends, Chris Lehane and Matt Bennett. Chris, out in California with Mark Fabiani, the author of Masters of Disaster, The Ten Commandments of Damage Control. And Matt, here in D.C., Senior Vice President of Public Affairs of Third Way, both gentlemen with Ph.D.s in the School for Scandal. But first, from the West Coast, it's Lehane. How are you, Chris?
0: Good, sir. Good to hear your voice. Hope you're doing well.
1: I'm doing very well, thank you. First, you know, there's a lot of things we should get through this week, uh, but we will begin with some good news. Um uh the longest running soap opera in Washington is over. Washington's most eligible bat- bachelor is is off the market, isn't
0: he? Uh that's right. That's right. The uh the uh the irreplaceable Michael Feldman, known by many and all as Legs Feldman, uh, was very blessed and fortunate to bat way over his head and have uh, Savannah Guthrie from uh, from NBC accept his proposal for marriage. So, there I, I am sure that you can't hear him, but they are crying all over the country. Uh, women who uh, who now uh, you know do not have the opportunity to get Legs Feldman, but it's a great day for for Michael and his family, and I'm thrilled for him and Savannah.
1: Let's hear a little bit from the Today Show Monday morning. It took uh, Amy and me by surprise as we were uh, mm-hmm. having our our bread and peanut butter and coffee and the ki- and getting the kids ready for school. Let's hear uh, Matt Lauer beginning and breaking the news. I, I tweeted this morning we'll a little photo hot. you might want to check out. Savannah, you have big Yay. news over the weekend. Yes, I got engaged over the weekend to yes. my boyfriend, Yay. Mike Selvin. Who I adore. Um, we've been dating for That's four good, years.
0: <laughs>
1: we've been together four years, so as he said, no one will accuse us of rushing into anything. Um, and so I and sweet. I just came in this morning and I was wearing this ring, hoping that one of my colleagues here might notice. <laughs> and I even ate my oatmeal like this in front of you, and I was stretching in front of you, and yeah, no nobody noticed. You could have seen it from across the <laughs> street. It's been a beauty for
0: a while now. So. <laughs>
1: Congratulations.
0: Yeah. Excited. It you know the best so part? excited for
2: you. Today it. throws a wedding. I don't even think it.
1: So, Chris, as you were coursing across the country with Feldman on Air Force Two in the summer of 2000 and into the fall, and you've tracked his career as he's built the Glover Park Group since then, did you ever think this day would come to pass?
0: Uh, well, you were talking about you and Amy eating it over breakfast. All I can tell you is uh, I got up in the morning was uh, looking at uh uh, my uh, email alert, and I was reading the Mike Allen morning report where it was in the lead, and I mentioned it to my wife, Andrea, and she said, good Lord, I thought this day would never happen. So uh, I think that probably encapsulates how many of us in, 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 in the broader Felden circle uh, uh, looked at this. Although, you know, I will say, and I think you probably feel the same way, uh, you know, since he and Savannah began dating uh, three or four years ago, uh, you could clearly tell uh, that he was very smitten and that, you know, she was the one. Uh, I think the real question was, uh, you know, not a question of of, 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 of if, but, but when he would ask the question. And uh, I think we're all, as I said earlier, thrilled that she said yes.
1: So no damage control to be done there. But uh, again, sort of coming out of the blue, Chris, uh, we we think that the Benghazi story is sort of, behind us with Secretary Clinton's testimony and the passage to John Kerry uh, and the Secretary of State. We don't uh, know if there's uh, another shoe to drop, and now there is uh, the hearings of of last week and the uh, many versions of the talking points, and frankly, the way Jay Carney had to to do his uh, pirouettes at the podium. Uh, What's as we're as we're talking in the middle of the week, but we're not going to put this on the air until Saturday, so we don't know yep. other things that are going to happen but combined Benghazi and the a p uh story with the justice Department and the i r s and the conservative groups, what do you make of all this
0: well i you know if you take a sort of a big step back at at, at fifty thousand feet uh you know what you clearly have going on is you have all three of these at some level intersecting with one another. And also coming in a time period, um, you know, where people were having, raising some questions and a narrative was developing on what the second term was going to look like. So even putting it aside, and I'll come back to it in a second, just the crisis management aspects of this, the political timing is a dimension here. You had a gun vote that went down, which, you know, I think objectively the president got that a lot closer than people ever would have guessed. Uh, you then had people raising questions about where this, the, the momentum was in the second term there was a little of that narrative out there, and suddenly these three things, and to use your phrase, you know hit out of you know out of the blue, and suddenly it, it plays into this prevailing thematic that is out there uh and also plays into this idea of you know does every two-term presidential administration you know ultimately end up facing the curse, which is some type of a a crisis slash scandal you know that they have to deal with now, having said all of that. You know, to me, none of these, based on what we know right now, come anywhere near the level of what prior administrations faced. This is not Iran-Contra I that Reagan faced. This is not the Monica impeachment process that President Clinton faced. This is not even at the level of the grand jury investigations into classified information being put out during the Bush administration. Because in each and every one of those you know, it was the issue was very damning. It went specifically to either the conduct of the president or in deep inside the White House. And, and at least based on what we know at this particular point in time, you know, that is not the case with any of these. But I do think what makes them particularly challenging is that, you know, we live in this age where there's a scandal industrial complex. that sort of winds itself up. Uh, uh, the Obama administration is dealing with these particular issues all at the same time in an ecology that's really difficult, just how media works in today's times. And he's also doing it with a Congress that really doesn't want to take any action um, and with an economy that is still struggling to get back on its feet. And all of that just, I think, makes it politically a very challenging situation. We can certainly get into the crisis aspects of it, but I think politically it's just sort of have to have a sense of where this all fits in.
1: Right. So if, if it's January of 1998 uh, yeah. and where both of us were and – uh, at the White House, and there's a Michael Izakoff story in Newsweek about Monica Lewinsky, and it gets spiked, and then Matt yep. Drudge runs it. And the scandal industrial complex of the time was a much more, uh, let's call it uh, Stone Age version of what yep. we have today. Let, just think of the last few we- uh, months, Chris, Newtown, uh, Boston Marathon bombings. Yep. You'd think that they would be so galvanizing that you would create... Uh, gun legislation that you would that there would be so much more focus on domestic terrorism after Boston yet those stories are are a bit in the rear view mirror now and while this week was dramatic and all the things that you say is right about how it creates challenges for the Obama administration to deal with is it possible that the that the the Twitter sphere of today that this becomes an old story in a, a couple weeks
0: it, it is, and it's a really smart point that you're making and, and something that i've you know, certainly seen on the client side, which is um you know you live in an age now where it's not a question of, of whether you're going to face a crisis it's only a question of when you face it uh but be, and, and it's in large part because of just how the modern media works the speed in which information the proliferation of outlets, the role of social media, the fact that uh you have outlets that are coming from one specific ideological or philosophical view or another, the low trust the existence of society. all those things create this atmosphere where uh you, you know crisis is basically endemic the flip of that is is that we also live in a period where there's so much information coming out that you move from one thing to the other very quickly in terms of public interest in, in, in these issues I, I think for for the obama administration the the big challenge here is you know is a republican controlled congress on the house side going to try to use these issues basically to occupy as much time uh, between now and the midterms to deny the president, you know, his his ability to move forward on some specific agenda items. Uh, And so for me, just from a pure political level, you know, the administration just needs to be aware, and they obviously are, but I guess sensitive to the fact that that the Republicans are going to try to use this to try to really do even more to uh, block his agenda, and so from their perspective, how do they manage their way through these three issues in a way that, you know, potentially allows them to, in fact, move forward? And and that was going to be hard. Without these events taking place, now with these events taking place, it gives the Republicans something for themselves to organize around, uh, and in a way where they may not necessarily take the political hits that they would have taken for just uh, continuing to obstruct the agenda. You've got
1: three and a half years left of an Adma- Obama administration, and you've got three stories breaking really within a week. Yep. Is it better or worse for the president that he's got a three-front war on his hands right now versus uh, a serial uh set of problems one after the other after the other
0: you know i think the answer is ultimately addressed by how effective they do at managing these issues um you know you can sort of break them down because they're all sort of uniquely different um benghazi to me you have to go back to the fall of 2012 where you have the 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 fever of the campaign intersects with a fog of a crisis uh and the administration i don't believe there is any bad intent here or a purposeful desire to misrepresent information. But because of the pressures they were under, they pushed information out there in the first 24, 48 hours to try to explain what did and did not happen in that, in that terrible tragedy. And some of that information just did not withstand public scrutiny or did not withstand uh, review as more and more information came out. So you had that one where they sort of dug themselves a deeper hole, you know, by, by some of the basic mistakes that they made. Initially, now on both the IRS And the Justice Department, at least the White House itself and the president, I think, in in these first 48, 72 hours of the issues, haven't done anything to dig themselves a a deeper hole on it. And, in fact, I think – and they're not necessarily getting the credit that they deserve, but I do think they have at least said the right things. We're going to hold people accountable. Uh, We want to get to the bottom of this. We want to get to the truth. Um, uh, And not said or done things that potentially make those more problematic. For me, the real question is, is the building itself able to isolate these so that, as we did in the Clinton White House and as other presidencies have done, where you get a core group of folks who ultimately are managing the, the crisis day to day, and the rest of the White House can do what it should be doing, which is advancing the president's agenda and supporting the president.
1: What I'd like to hear is Jay Carney at the podium answering a question from Wendell Goller. Jay, Wend-
0: on the AP phone records, what prevents the president from picking up a phone, calling Eric Holder and asking him what happened? Uh, an enormous, a great deal prevents the President from doing that. It would be wholly inappropriate for the President to involve himself in a criminal investigation that, as Jessica points out, uh, at least as reported, involves uh, uh, leaks of information from the administration. I mean, imagine the story on Fox uh, if that were to happen. So uh, that's why.
1: Chris Lehane uh, that's Jay Carney uh, the yep. White House press secretary who is now several years into his job uh, in in our time in the White House we were dealing we we had Mike McCurry followed by Joe Lockhart as the Lewinsky scandal broke and impeachment evolved um, at what point should a White House decide to uh, uh, silo off its issues and create uh, a version of Fabiani, Lehane and Jim Kennedy.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think when you have I, I, look, my belief is that in a modern day presidency, uh, the building and the administration is always dealing with a series of one-offs, almost a protact, protracted series of, of, of crises, and so having the capacity to have almost a pre-existing entity inside that's responsible for dealing with these issues, whatever they may be, you know, on a regular basis, is, is just it's just a good way to functionally be able to manage. Uh, your way through these challenges, um, and so I think that and uh, that it, it, it allows the Jay Carneys of the world, who are the press secretaries, to be in a position so that when they're asked those questions. And by the way, his, his answer was was absolutely right, which is if the president was making those types of calls, if the White House was involving itself with the IRS, you know, the story would be a lot worse and would be focused on whether there is a cover up or not. Uh, but but the idea is for the press secretary not to be in the position of having to answer those questions substantively and really be able to refer them to, uh, you know, a core group of folks who are responsible for, for for dealing with them. When McCurry was there, he used to refer to, to our, our operation as the garbage man. You know, go talk to the garbage man. They can, they can explain it to you. But, but even more than just the fact that, that the press secretary could refer questions over, you know, it is the fact that you have a small group of folks who are sort of Doing all the nuts and bolts that you need to do to manage this stuff, and, and I'll give a specific example. But you know, this week, the, uh, the Benghazi emails obviously exploded, and you know those were emails that if, if folks had been able to get their hands around them uh, and actually uh, uh, provided them affirmatively and proactively to the press and explained what they were and what they were not, the history of them, what happened – uh, you know, that's a very different story that emerges than the way it happened, which is emails go over to Congress because Congress requested them. Congress puts them out in the worst possible way for the administration, and suddenly the White House is having to play defense on it. Uh, and what could have been a much smaller story ends up becoming a much bigger story that they're not going to have to deal with for days, weeks, potentially even months, where, you know, if you would had a group that was capable of sort of managing this, they were worried about it, they were thinking about it day to day. Uh, They could have put together a little plan to have dealt with it and probably have dealt with it pretty effectively.
1: Right. It seems like Carney uh, both does his uh, his um, background gaggle uh, on a daily basis. And he also is pretty religious about doing the briefing and thinks that's an important role for the press secretary to do. But he doesn't have the ability to refer to another office across West Exec, (laughs) which will deal with. Which will engage with reporters and deal with them on substance, but won't do with it with won't do it with audio or video. And can you for, bring us back and give us a little uh, a history lesson of what happened beginning in January '98 of how you guys were put together?
0: Yeah, even first of all, your point is a hundred percent right. I mean, I think Jay Carney is being put in a really difficult, and in fact, at some level, an unfair and and, and untenable position of having to go out there. And do multiple jobs, and you know, really being exposed so that he feels like he's almost doing a videotaped deposition in front of the country every day. That's just not—it's not fair for him. Uh, and you know, he has done, I think, a very good job under very challenging circumstances. Uh, but it, in the Clinton White House, we actually—it even predates 1998. It goes back to the uh, November December of 1994, which is when um, the Republicans took back or took Congress really for the first time in a long time. Uh, Newt Gingrich, uh, uh, be, you know, became the leader on, on the House side, and you also had Republicans on the Senate side. And in both bodies, they made very clear that they were going to use the congressional investigative process uh, to, um, to really target uh, the president, the first lady, uh, and the White House writ large. Uh, it began with something that people may or may not remember called Whitewater and yep. spun off into a whole bunch of other different directions. And so you almost had... This pre-existing structure, and that, that that really was the early version of this of, of the scandal industrial complex. Uh, and Harold Ickes, who was the deputy chief of staff at the White House at the time, you know, recognized that uh, that that there needed to be a specific unit in the White House, almost like a war room or uh, or response apparatus, that could manage the legal piece, that could manage the congressional relations piece, that could manage the press piece, um, and play all three levels of that chess. Uh, so that the White House could focus on what the White House needed to focus on, what President Clinton needed to focus on, which was his agenda. Um, and so that was really specifically put together so that these issues could be isolated within one part of the White House while everyone else could do their job. And it became basically a permanent structure uh, in the Clinton White House because one issue led to the other. And you know, we do now live in a time period where Congress um, you know, we've, – we've had uh, Congress either split between the parties or the White House and Congress split between the parties – uh, and those you know out of power, but who who maintain one of the bodies of Congress using their investigative processes to you know for partisan reasons and to uh, try to uh, impact the white house and and white House agendas, so I just do think as as part of a modern day presidency, you need to have that entity within the building just to be able to manage the stuff on a day to day basis
1: and and it 's tough to put that entity together right now in the midst of a crisis. you almost want it prophylactically. Right. Uh, in place, uh, but because you don't, what has felt so awkward to me this week is yeah. uh, referring questions back to the uh, to the spotlighted on organizations, whether it's the Department of Justice press office or yeah. the Internal Revenue Service. Which is, if Carney is wrestling with it, these uh, agencies are are yeah. far less <laughs> equipped to deal with it. You want to send it back to. Uh, what what did McCurry refer to you as the the garbage man? Yeah,
0: well, he referred, he, he referred to us as the garbage man. Yes.
1: And there's almost a residual benefit too of having garbage men at the disposal, which is uh, if if relations between Jay and Jen Palmieri and Dan Pfeiffer and the reporters that cover the White House is strained because so much of it is a as an on air deposition, mm-hmm. if you have uh, colleagues, even though there are hived off colleagues who are yeah. dealing straight and having long substantive conversations as long as they are not on camera not for audio uh, everyone's feels like they're being dealt with the the people who've who have continued to raise their voices over the last few weeks uh, with a level of incense that i haven't seen in a long time that we respect people like ron fournier mm-hmm. if he had a chris lahain or mark fabiani to go and really sit with and talk to they would be more ameliorated wouldn't they
0: that 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 that's exactly right, and you know to do this stuff well, you have to spend you know enormous amounts of time with each of these individual folks who are covering this uh to walk them through it i mean these end up being very fact intensive situations where the facts really do matter um and you know you can't sort of deal with them in one offs with six second sound bites and uh, and in particular, you really can't get into the – you know, doing trying to get into the substance in the press room during a press briefing is, is virtually impossible just given, you know, the complexity of these issues. Um, and so you really do need a group of folks who can spend the time that it takes to really walk each of these individual reporters and their outlets through this stuff. I mean, we used to begin, you know, every day at the White House when we're in the middle of these, uh, and, you know, it would be an 8- to 12-hour day of just sitting down with different people and walking them through things, really explaining the facts to them, uh, showing them the documents uh doing it on our terms. Uh but as a result of doing that, you know, over time, the building established credibility that it was actually making this information available, explaining it, taking hits when we needed to take the hits, but also getting the benefit of the doubt because we put the information out.
1: So pivoting now to uh the rest of the world of Chris Lahane, because the the issues we're talking about have applicability to uh anyone who finds themselves in the spotlight, you were the uh screenwriter of the recently released knife fight, and also the author, along with uh, the aforementioned Mr. Fabiani and Bill <laughs> Gutentag of Masters of Disaster: The Ten Commandments of Damage Control. Let's yeah. talk about parts two and three first. With the, it's a matter of life and death. The principles of survival: stop digging, do no harm, discipline, and credibility. Talk to yeah. us about the the, pr- the principles of survival.
0: Sure. So the premise of the book. Um, and we've touched on this, is that you, know, you live in an age where it's not a question of, of if you're going to face a crisis, it's only a question of when. And by the way, a crisis could be broadly defined. It could be narrowly defined. It could You could be a major public company uh, with some type of um, accounting scandal. You could be a professional athlete with a uh, performance-enhancing drug situation. You could be the, the you know, folks at a local diner who got a bad Yelp review and are suddenly losing patrons, a teacher at a high school with a cheating uh, uh, scandal on his or her hand. So, you know, it really spans the gamut. and then of course our all time favorite is the guy in the cubicle who hit the reply all on the email. A terrible uh, situation, <laughs> right? Done it many times. Every time I say that, people break out you know, the, the sweat break out on their forehead. We've all been through or, that.
1: Or Anthony Weiner and not yes, fundamentally right, not right. understanding Twitter.
0: <laughs> That's right. Uh, so, uh, uh, so you know, with the premise, it's that, that, that question of uh, of if, but when, you know, what are the the principles to survive once you deal with the situation? And you know, overarching all of this is the notion that you know ultimately. Uh, uh, what a crisis is really about is it's a specific challenge to you, your organization, your entity's trust, uh, and in particular, whether that core audience, the, the folks who will make or break your future, uh, are going to be willing to trust you again as you move forward. Uh, and so with that basic context, we offer three governing principles in terms of survival. And principle one, and you had to through them, but principle one is do no harm, find yourself in a hole, drop the shovel, stop the digging, uh, take the equivalent of the Hippocratic Oath and, you know, do no more harm uh, than where you are, and that breaks out into a couple ways. It means, uh, and we've talked about, a little bit about some of this in, in this conversation, but it means making sure that under pressure you don't put out uh, uh, inaccurate information. It means that you don't want to overspin. In fact, you almost want to underspin. It means that you have to make very clear from the beginning that you want to get to the truth and that you're going to hold yourself and others accountable. Um, so that's, that's principle one, do no harm. Uh, principle two is you need to be disciplined. Um, uh, you need to, to recognize that this is going to be a long term uh, 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 fight or battle and it's not going to resolve itself quickly. Uh, and uh, you need to understand that you have to have a functional organization capable of making uh, good decisions. You need to be prepared. Uh, and you just can't get yourself lost in, in the fog of a crisis. Uh, I'm sure you've seen this, but we have so many times where people have had sort of their crisis management plan, you know, on the shelf in their in their company's office and the second something happens, everything that they've sort of planned for it goes out the window. Uh so you have to have the discipline to, to stick to your plan. And then the third principle and, and 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 the most important of all of these is that credibility is the coin of the realm, which is at the end of the day, if you are trying to rebuild trust, the way to rebuild that trust is by uh protecting, enhancing, maintaining your credibility. People understand that something has happened. People understand that's the way the world works. They want to see how you handle it and how you respond to it. Do you do it in a credible way? And that comes back to making sure you're putting out accurate information. It means you can control the flow of information. We've talked about the emails. You can put those out under your own terms. It means setting expectations. We're going to put information out on X date, and then on X date you put the information out. All of that builds up credibility, and ultimately credibility is what allows people to believe that you're going to be trustworthy uh, and that they're willing to trust you as you go forward.
1: So that all leads in in the Masters of Disaster to your Ten Commandments of mm-hmm. of dealing with this, and you begin with it in that section by playing to win. What's the ultimate end game of this?
0: Well, the, you know the ultimate end game. Uh, people will say, "Well, could, we, could we give me the book and the sentence," and 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 the book and the sentence is how do you tell the truth the right way? Um, and you know, oftentimes you will find yourself in a situation. Uh, and you have the, the question you need to ask yourself or your organization is, who is our target audience here? You know, who is going to make that determination of whether we're trustworthy or not so that we can survive and move forward or continue to have a bright future? And you know, that audience you know, really depends on what space you're in. If you're a, a candidate for office, it could be swing voters in a particular state or group of states. If you're a publicly traded company, it could be your shareholders, lenders, analysts. If you're that diner, it's, it's, it's just the people who come and eat at, at your restaurant. Uh, And so figuring out exactly who that target audience is uh, and then making sure that you're communicating to them and telling them the truth the right way as effectively as possible.
1: Tell me some of the commandments that you think are are most applicable or or most important lessons of the 10, and then we'll encourage people to to go download it on on, uh, iTunes or go to the rapidly declining number of bookstores in America and try and find it.
0: Uh, well you know the first one uh, uh which is you know which the and, and the and the commandments I should say are really just the tactical steps that you take to execute on the principles that that we've talked about you know so the first commandment you know uh, makes very clear that uh it's really important to put this information out on your own terms first right uh and 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 to do it in a way where uh that you're going to get credit for having put out the information explained the information provided people the information so to us that that it's, it's the first commandment it's uh... It, it, and it's, it's arguably the most important and that's why we call it full disclosure uh... and when you're in that particular mode you, you have to recognize that you need to put it all out there you can't hold back bits and pieces either because they're embarrassing or because you're not comfortable with that particular element being out there you, know, you have to put it all out there and you want to do it in one fell swoop uh, and so full disclosure really is almost the foundation for all the other ones uh, and then the other commandments I would point to uh, would be Commandments 9 and 10, uh, which really are more in the counter-offensive area. Um, you know, uh, They deal with the fact that you do need to fight back in these situations. Now, you can only fight back once you've actually put the information out there uh, and disclosed and taken responsibility because that gives you the foundation of the platform to push off from. But once you've done that, uh, you can. And oftentimes in a crisis, particularly in a political one like we're seeing play out right now, you know, there are folks either with their own agendas, um, uh, uh, with their own goals, uh, folks who are benefiting from what's happening to you or your organization. And, you know, it helps as part of your comeback to be able to point that out. So we talk about no free layups. Uh, it's a reference to Pat Riley, the former L.A. Lakers, New York Knicks, Miami Heat coach, uh, you know, who used to say that no one should be able to score on you for free, and the same applies in a crisis, which is if someone's benefiting and trying to score on you, Um and you've established a platform to be able to expose them. You should, because that then provides an entirely different context for how people examine and, and consider the particular issue.
1: Well, Chris Lehane, the original master of disaster from uh, the Clinton White House, my good friend for many years, uh, with Mark Fabiani and Steve Bill Gutentag, the author of Masters and Disaster. Um, thanks so much for shedding some light on what the White House is going through this week and what it portends for the rest of the summer. And I hope that uh, our friend Palmieri might uh, download a copy of this book just in case she might need it. Uh,
0: I'm, I'm sure that the White uh, there's smart people over there, and uh, and I'm sure they're going to get this figured out one way or the other. Uh, but always, find, these are you know the second or third time you and I've done these. I I really enjoy these conversations, and you guys do a great great job at this program.
1: Thanks, Chris. Good to talk to you as always.
0: Okay, good hearing your voice.
1: Bye. After the break, my friend Matt Bennett, senior vice president of public affairs of Third Way.
0: This is the only channel that takes you inside Washington D.C.
2: My message is it's just not realistic. If we're serious about growing our economy. Our economy. It's clear the president's policies
0: not helping the economy. The economy. The bureaucracy.
2: Paul's job. We'll be able to reduce our deficit. Fighting over power. It's starting to make a lot more sense. This is POTUS. <laughs>
1: my old friend of 20-something years, Matt Bennett, Senior Vice President of Public Affairs for Third Way. Matt I picked quite a week to uh, bring the show back to Washington and connect with you, major pieces of legislation or governing that's on President Obama's agenda. And you said, and I quote, it's definitely going to impact his ability to get things done in Congress. Expand on that.
2: Yeah, I I don't think that this is going to be a scandal that tarnishes his legacy in any way, that he had nothing to do with this. And I don't think people are going to really focus on him but what it is going to do is make it harder to do things, and this is the moment in his presidency where he had hoped to do a lot of things. This is the window.
1: As was 97-98 for Clinton. We exactly. We wanted to get a lot of stuff done in the second term. Right.
2: The first 18 months of the second term are, is the window. After that, you, you move into lame-duck status. Somebody, A bunch of other people are running for president, and uh, you know, as you get closer to the midterm elections, it gets harder. So we are right in the sweet spot for governing at the moment, and so this is really a a problem because whatever happens in the Senate, we know that house Republicans are going to really kind of focus on this excessively because that's what they do. And so it's just going to make it harder to cut deals with these guys. The level of difficulty was hugely high already and now it's infinitely high. And so we just don't know if anything is going to be possible now.
1: There's a sort of way in which these things are written about that I find almost cliche that, uh, because, and we started, it. we started, is this a second term curse that affects all presidents? The other sort of meme that goes through is, oh, too bad. The president is using his uh, B team or his C team to deal with these things. But I'd argue that uh, the combination of people that he has now, his chief of staff, uh, his communications director, his press secretary, are as uh, are as strong as he's ever had. And he has new uh new life at State with John Kerry. He has a new guy at Treasury with Jack Lew. I, I hadn't felt like this the, this was second-term blues or the B-team coming in.
2: No, not at all, and I don't think you can lay any of this at their feet. I think, you know, Jay had a terrible day yesterday, but that wasn't his fault. You know, they had, had these incredible confluence of things and a, and a press corps that was personally offended by one of these situations. When you involve the press itself as an entity... Uh, it's gonna be very difficult for you and I really agree I think the team he's got in place now is very very strong he's got some new people he's got some people who've been with him a long time and those are the right people for the jobs and, and it has nothing to do with them it's just the nature of this business that you're gonna be confronted with this stuff
1: um- as you mentioned in the quote uh, his ability to get things done in congress a lot of the, some of the things that he was trying to get done is very close to you and your heart and third way uh, principally uh, the mansion Toomey bill and uh, uh, universal background checks um, where had you been personally and third way prior to sandy hook where 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 was the world of new gun legislation prior to the massacre
2: well, as you know, I I did what every White House staffer does. I left a pretty good White House job in 2001 and took a job with a startup gun control group. That seemed like a really good career move to me. Uh, and and we were trying to do you know gun safety legislation in the teeth of the Bush Revolution. So there was a Bush was president. Tom Delay was basically running Congress. There was a, no way Congress was going to pass any federal gun bills. But I spent four years, and and the founders of Third Way, four of us, spent four years at a group called Americans for Gun Safety pushing to close some of the loopholes in the Brady Act that were really causing enormous problems. Uh, Back then, it was just the gun show loophole. The internet wasn't a big marketplace for guns at the time. It is now. So this has been something that I've been working on for 13 years. Uh, Ever since 2005, when we founded Third Way, we've been continuing to do some work on guns, but there was no appetite for it, even President Obama wasn't really interested in doing gun work because it just was clear that Congress wasn't going to do anything after Newtown. Everybody recognized, including the president that that we were in a completely different place that it it was a it was a sea change in the way that people were thinking about politics. You had people like Joe Manchin, who was an a rated n r a member, a Democrat from West Virginia, but very conservative, very pro gun saying on television things that everybody were saying on the kitchen table, which was this has got to stop. We have got to do something about this. And our view was um, this was like no massacre that had come before it. This was um, fundamentally different and had changed the chemistry and changed the politics.
1: It was terribly awful. There's no way to describe the massacre. But why was it different from Aurora or Columbine or Tucson in terms of Body count or the age of the people involved, it, it, and I find myself in May uh, thinking back um, to the fact that not not nothing has happened after Newtown anyway. So you say it was very different after after Newtown, but was it really?
2: Well, I think actually a lot of things have happened. Uh, we haven't completed. We haven't. Finish the race, as they say in boston but the, but we're we 're running it
1: well, how did it start after newtown what, what what How did you mobilize?
2: Well, the very first thing we did was uh, send a memo to the White House like the next day, uh, saying, in essence, this is a moment, and you've got to take it and it 's not because of our memo. they knew that already. The president had basically issued an order the minute he heard about this tragedy that they were going to do something about it, and I have to say, we are not always um, 100% uh, in agreement with the way the White House goes about doing business. But we thought that they've handled the gun issue perfectly since December 14th. The president has been resolute. He has been. They've moved quickly. Uh, Biden's task force moved very fast. The recommendations they came out with comported almost exactly with what with they thought, what we thought that they should be doing. They mobilized people on the Hill. They move forward quickly. And look, the Senate taking a vote within three months, remember that the Senate moves in kind of geologic time. So that's like a lightning fast response for the Senate. And yes, we lost the first vote, but everyone believed that it would be very hard to win the first time and it would take multiple votes. Uh, and our hope and expectation is and uh, was and is that this would be like Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which in September of 2010 failed in a Senate vote by four votes, exactly the same as the as the guns. Uh, and then in December of 2010, it passed uh, by 66 to 44, or 34. So um, we believed that we would get there. Uh, is it different today? We, too soon to tell, but uh, but we, we do believe that there are the votes in the Senate to get this across the finish line, and then we'll have to see about the House.
1: One difference in this effort is that you had uh, many more um, profoundly important lobbyists on your side. So tell me about your relationship with the Newtown Sandy Hook families and how uh, they have the role that they've played in this.
2: So you asked why I thought this crisis was different, and it goes to that question also. Uh, The horrible tragedies of Virginia Tech, Aurora, Gabby Giffords, uh, as terrible as they were, were kind of become immune to those things uh, in America, as awful as that may be. And for the most part, these were adults. Uh, They were college students, so they were very young in Virginia Tech, but these were adults and they were anonymous. The the tragedy at Sandy Hook was 26-year-olds, and the people in Washington responded to that tragedy as parents and not as politicians. Every single one of them, or those of whom have children, could picture themselves sitting in that firehouse waiting for word, every single one. And uh, so that kind of emotional response is fundamentally different than the horror and kind of sickening, sickening feeling that you get from your more garden variety tragedies involving adults. And so that's why everyone here believed that it was different. What happened for us is that, and, and uh, in general, is that never before in the history of the gun movement have the victims of one mass tragedy organized themselves quickly to try to bring about change in Washington?
1: How did that organization take place? Who was the galvanizing uh entity?
2: Well, there were twenty six victims in Newtown, six of them adults, twenty children and uh, But the community was incredibly overwhelmingly impacted by this, and there was a group of parents from the school who had children there that were uninjured in the in the tragedy who gathered in a kitchen in Newtown one or two days after the event and said, we have to do something. We, we cannot simply sit around and do nothing. Newtown and Sandy Hook are affluent communities of well-educated, high-power people, and they believed that they could do something. So uh, a, a, there were a group of them who, some of them took time off of their jobs. Others volunteered uh, very regularly. Uh, they they put together an organization called Sandy Hook Promise. And they started raising money, they started organizing, a, a sea of volunteers came, as you can imagine, that the community was just blown apart by this, and they wa- everybody wanted to try to do something. And their purpose was first to help the community heal. They, they had 26 families that were devastated. They had 11 others uh, of children who had escaped uh, the classrooms and, and lived, but were suffering from just unbelievable PTSD that the teachers also are, are still suffering and they had a lot of work to do to help their community members which they did but they decided they wanted to do other things also they wanted to work on mental health they wanted to work on school safety and they wanted to get into the gun debate and they did it really fast they organized themselves they recruited uh, some of the victim families who uh, unbelievably just a month after after the funerals of their family members and children We're coming down to Washington to meet privately with the vice president, with some senators. Are
1: people like Third Way helping to explain process and say, or arrange meetings? How are meetings getting arranged? How are their logistics getting done?
2: They hired our friend Ricky Seidman, who is a very well-respected political uh, consultant, and she has been guiding them every step of the way. Uh, They've hired a few others, too, to help them with the legislative process. Uh, Third Way and, and I have been volunteering our services to help them understand gun policy and politics, so uh, I've briefed them three or four times, both here and in Newtown. Uh, and by them, I mean the core of the people that are really doing this work are the victims' families themselves, mostly parents, but a few spouses of and, and children of the adult victims. And uh, these are the bravest people you can possibly imagine. I mean, they they are telling a story. This is the worst thing that anyone could imagine happening to them, the loss of their children in the worst possible way. And they're telling that story again and again and again, because they believe that something good must come of this to honor the memory of their loved ones. And so they have thrown themselves into this. And by they, I mean, about 15 of the 26 victim families have been really involved. A few, mo- few others have been a little bit involved, but that's a, that's a pretty big number. Some
1: interesting polyoptic tactics employed in this, uh, as someone like Ricky or or, or others might have uh, come up with the idea of President of the United States Barack Obama f- travels in Air Force One up to Hartford, Connecticut, makes a major speech on this at the uh, on the campus of University of Hartford, uh, where my son used to go to elementary school and uh, where I spend a lot of time, and. Then the victims' families are brought back as guests on Air Force One to Washington to lobby. Powerful imagery. A bit of blowback, though, on the Hill. Talk about, or what's your reaction to people who said overkill or use of props and that kind of reaction to this?
2: Give me a break. That's insane. The president has uh, made clear that he was going to expend political capital to do something very hard, which was to pass the first significant gun safety legislation in this country since 1994. It's been nearly 20 years since we've done anything on guns. And basically, we've only passed gun legislation three times in American history, 1968, 1993 with the Brady Act, and 1994 with the Crime Bill. That's it. So this is hard to do. Uh, By the way, those other times we had a Democratic Congress, uh, and he doesn't. So he's doing something super hard, and he has really put himself out there. And these people are enormously appreciative of the leadership that he's shown. And he is enormously appreciative of the courage and the graciousness that they've shown. And it is insane to make something nefarious of him working with them to do something that that all believe to be very important.
1: Were you on Capitol Hill for any of the meetings? With senators,
2: I didn't attend the meetings, but I was there to talk to the families about the Manchin-Toomey bill because when they came down with the president, the the bill was literally being negotiated at that moment while they were on the plane. Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin and Pat Toomey were talking. They they hammered out a deal. Uh, they the families were doing lobbying co- uh, meetings the morning that the manchin press conference took place. I went over there for their lunch break, told them about the deal. They decided that, that it was a good one that they would endorse it, and then they went forward and uh and just lobbied as hard as they could. They met with both manchin to they met with a lot of wavering senators. They did everything they could. They sat in the gallery, uh they did press, they did all kinds of stuff.
1: What what might have been the uh reaction of some senators who ultimately voted no, uh even though they as they appropriately should have they took the meeting with the families they sat down with them they looked them in the eye they they heard the request how can what was the justification that you think they they used to say no uh when the when the vote finally came to pass
2: The reason that we think this bill is ultimately going to pass is because nobody could offer a substantive justification for this vote. If you look at the people that were targeted who ended up voting no, people like Jeff Flake and Kelly Ayotte, uh, people like Mark Begich and, and Max Baucus, none of them were able to offer any kind of coherent reason for voting against this bill to expand background checks in commercial settings. What they said, what they, some of them who were very forthright, what they refused to say was this is politics, that we're not going to cross the NRA, and we just don't have the stomach for it. So when you know that you're doing the wrong thing from a moral and substantive standpoint, and when you discover that you've done the wrong thing from a political standpoint, as many of these guys have, they look at the polls that show that they've dropped by double digits as a direct result of this vote, well, then you know you've got to change your vote. And we think that there's a bunch of people who are in that decision right now.
1: Any thoughts or things that you can illuminate us on about the behind-the-scenes efforts to uh, talk to people like Wayne LaPierre and reason with him and have the NRA soften its view or allow a procedural vote or the ultimate vote not to count against their record?
2: Yeah, I mean, I could tell you that there's no talking to the NRA. They are They have become so intransigent and so radical that uh, they simply won't take these meetings. Uh, What we we have come to understand in talking to some Republican offices and and talking to uh, Senator Manchin is that the NRA was getting pushed around by people to their right. There's a basically a fringe group called Gun Owners of America, whose uh, director and president get on television a lot, but they have no members. And they're, they believe basically there should be no gun laws. These are the most radical of the gun groups. And they are pushing the NRA from the right. And apparently that is causing uh, them to really tighten up and to take these kinds of extreme positions that they've taken in this debate. So our view is there's really no dealing with the NRA. They are all in on opposing anything. And, and that's just we're going to have to work around them
1: talk to me about the role in this most recent effort of the players who were a bit more i wouldn't say a bit more on the periphery but they were not the main lobbyists i.e the the sandy hook families that might have been joe scarborough and mika Brzezinski, journalists broadcasters who basically for a extended period of time gave over their broadcast to make a a Partisan or a, a, an effort to to pass legislation.
2: Yeah, I think it was hugely important. Look, Mansion um, first came onto everybody's radar uh, on our side when he went on Morning Joe and said, "We got to do something about this," multiple times. And uh, Scarborough was a hero of this effort and continues to be. He has been right about every single thing he said. And he's been right about the politics too. He's basically made the case that his party is in on the wrong side of history here and they better get right or it's going to be a problem for them politically. Uh, so that has had a huge impact. Now, whatever the size of the Morning Joe audience, the people they reach are very, very important. And uh, it caused a, a huge stir in Washington circles when uh, they kept... Pushing on this every single day, it was very important, and I think there are others as well, uh, other commentators who have been some predictable liberal commentators with some less predictable. Like who? Um, well, uh, you've had people like David Frum and other conservatives who have weighed in on this. Now he's Canadian, so I don't know if that counts. But uh, but there have been people who have been willing to step out and say, "Look, my side has gotten this wrong. We better get right because." You know we're gonna be on the wrong side of this issue, the way we've been on the wrong side of gay marriage for a long time and and we may be on the wrong side of uh of energy and climate change. I think there's real uneasiness in the d c Republican establishment about how radicalized they become on a whole bunch of things, and this is just one of them
1: One very predictable player on the the pro uh background check side is obviously New York mayor Mike Bloomberg invested in a, a significant amount of resources uh in the effort. Creating ads, airing ads, some criticism that he's the he and Chuck Schumer might be the wrong spokespeople for this effort. Uh, Northeast
2: New York liberals' reaction. He's been very smart about how they've done this. Uh, The people they hire really know what they're doing. The stuff they put out is incredibly well done. Uh, And let me tell you something. When we first got into the gun debate in the early 2000s, that was not the case. The gun control movement did not have uh, the best and and most uh, uh, strategic stuff to offer. Uh, so they've made a big difference, the, the group that Bloomberg founded, Mayors Against Illegal Guns. And this idea that he's not the right spokesman, well, of course, everybody understands that, including Bloomberg. So if you look at the ad that, that uh, his group put up on the air in New Hampshire to pressure Kelly Ayotte... They have a series of New Hampshireites with very thick New Hampshire accents making this case. Then it's not like they have Mike Bloomberg at a you know New York mayor uh, podium making the case. So they understand. Now it's they're not trying to hide it. It's very easy to kind of pierce the veil behind all these um, fake organizations that uh, that groups will set up. You know, Americans for whatever. Uh so they're not trying to pretend that this isn't Bloomberg's money, but they are uh using really smart strategic thinkers to figure out ways to bring maximum pressure.
1: Other people very much involved in this, uh uh Gabby Giffords and Mark Kelly. Um how has how has was the effort propelled uh by what Gabby Giffords, Congresswoman Giffords, was able to summon the courage to, to appear, to talk, to write, to publish, and mark support along the way.
2: Yeah, they've been remarkably impactful. She is obviously a testament to extraordinary courage and determination. And uh, her appearance before Congress, her uh, New York Times op-ed, her petition campaign, all very successful. She's the, Their organization, Americans for Responsible Solutions, has raised $4 million in like six weeks, uh, which for the gun debate is just unbelievable. And they've hired smart, strategic people, too, and they're doing very impactful things. I thought um, Mark Kelly's testimony in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee was just a tour de force. He was incredibly uh, well-briefed and smart. Look, the guy's an astronaut. A rocket scientist, you know, he's good at what he does, and they've been really good.
1: We did see up in the New York media market an ad of Jim and Sarah Brady. Uh, what's the What's the Brady's role in this at this point?
2: Well, the Brady campaign has always been, uh, ever since the um, Jim and Sarah took over handgun control in the '80s, has always been the central gun control group in the debate. They've been there from the beginning, and they've been excellent too. They have a relatively new leadership at Brady, uh, very smart people. They've been uh, doing a very good job of grassroots mobilization. That's more their role. They don't have the resources that the Bloomberg group does, or even that Gabby's been able to raise because of her high profile. But um, it, those groups, in addition to the Center for American Progress, whose gun staffer came from a Mayor's Against Illegal Guns, and is very, very good, uh, and Third Way, th- those groups that we've named are really the ones that have been involved the most.
1: So. Assuming that uh, what's happening this week in Washington uh, either can be hived off or legislative progress can continue, map out how optimistically uh, Manchin-Toomey could be revisited, Manchin-Toomey too, and what has been hinted at is some of the provisions might be slightly softened to allow a Kelly Ayotte to flip her vote. What actually is would you see happening to change the bill itself, and what would be the timetable?
2: Well, yeah, here's the difficulty. In the age of the sequester, when you don't have pork to give out anymore, there's really n- not a lot that the president has to negotiate. He can't call up Kelly and say, hey, I'm going to build a you know new this or that up in New Hampshire, and you're going to vote for the bill. That That's how it used to happen in, in our day in the White House, and not anymore. So the way that you negotiate with people like that is you've got to give them an honorable out. They, As I said before, I'm pretty confident that Kelly and, and Jeff Flake and others know that they did the wrong thing here and they want to get right, but they've got to be given something that they can go back to their state and say, hey, I got this. And there's plenty. Uh, there are provisions that we that can be added to the bill that would make it easier to um, do various things with firearms across state lines. There's things that you could do involving public lands. There's There's all kinds of stuff. What Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin and Pat Toomey have been very clear about to their great credit is they they are not going to open up the fundamental mechanism of Manchin Toomey because they don't want to create yet another loophole in the law that this bill is intended to close. So they're not going to negotiate too much on how the bill works. There are some very small tweaks that can be made to help folks in very rural places. But uh, you're not going to see a big wholesale change in Manchin Toomey.
1: What will be the what are the tea leaves that we'll see uh, that this is coming up again for vote? When does this happen? What needs to happen to allow it to get recycled?
2: Well, uh, Senator Reed, Harry Reid, voted against it for procedural reasons. So um, even though it got 55 votes, it really got 56. And what that means is, as leader, he can bring it back whenever he wants. He can do it tomorrow. He can do it in a month. He can do it in six months, anytime during this Congress. So it could be any time. The hope and expectation was that it would come back up again before the August recess. I'm not sure about that now. It depends on how quickly immigration moves, and it depends, as you say, on what happens with these kind of uh, little mini storms that have popped up in D.C. But uh, our hope is that in the next few months, it comes back again after a series of conversations with some of the swing voters to see if uh, we can get them to change their mind.
1: Matt Bennett, Senior Vice President, Public Affairs, co-founder of Third Way, my friend of 20 years, going back to the old advanced days of Clinton-Gore 92. Thanks a lot for joining us.
2: It's great to be here, as always. Love your show. Thanks.
1: That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter, at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS.